Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We'll be looking at the first five verses of chapter 5. And as we prepare to read from that text, I want to get us started in thinking in the right direction for this passage. So let me just tell you something, and I want to see how you respond. You can be anything you want to be. Have you ever heard that? Has anyone ever told you that? It's a pretty common phrase in our culture, and especially when I was growing up, it was something that I heard quite often. You can be whatever you want to be. And the idea is that if you just work hard enough and long enough and you want it enough, then you'll make any dream you want come true. That really seemed to be the motto of my generation when planning our futures. Advertisers, they took that phrase and they really grasped onto it. They took a hold of it and they ran with it. So if you use these certain brands, they promise you a boost in whatever it is you're trying to do. So do you have a dream of playing basketball in the NBA? Just wear Nike shoes, drink Gatorade, work hard, want it enough, and you're going to make it into the NBA. You want to be a famous singer? Just work really hard and want it. Well, it didn't take me too long to figure out that the phrase, you can be anything you want to be, is not true at all. Maybe people just meant that I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do, but even then, that's not really necessarily true. People are not all blank slates with equal amounts of potential in every area. We were all born with specific traits and gifts and mental and physical abilities about us. Each one of us are different. So who we are as individuals is going to have a huge impact on how we live our lives. And if you don't take that gifting and those personalities into account, then your life is going to be a whole lot harder than it would be otherwise. I don't care how much you want to play in the NFL. If you weigh 140 pounds and you're 5'7", it doesn't matter how hard you work. You're not going to make it in the NFL. That has nothing to do with me, by the way. <laughs> On another, you know, on the other hand, if you're totally tone deaf, please don't try to become a classical singer or any type of singer. It's just not a good idea. How God has made us has a huge impact on how we have to live our lives. But there are also far more important applications of this idea. So I'll ask you another question. Who are you as a believer? What does the fact that you are a child of God teach you about how to live your life from day to day? Well, Scripture is very clear about how we are to live as Christians. And what we're going to see in this passage is that because we've been born of God, we must love God. So with that introduction, let's read from God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, the first five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's ask for the Lord's blessing as we continue to look at this passage. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this text, we see very quickly that it is a wonderful text. It is a beautiful text. Lord, we need our hearts awakened to the truth of it. We need your spirit at work within us to implant this word upon our hearts, to 
uh, help us to understand this word. So, Lord, speak to us this morning through your word, we pray, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, what does it mean to be born of God? Well, at the simplest level, being born of God means that you believe in Jesus Christ. Only children of God will believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's what the first part of verse 1 means. Belief only develops in those who have been born of God. And this is not a physical rebirth. It is a spiritual one. So raise your hand if you gave birth to yourself physically or spiritually. Okay, unsurprisingly, no hands went up. And that's the point. Nobody can do that. And yet every believer goes through spiritual rebirth before they can believe. That's why the text says that all who believe have been born of God. So by the time one comes to trust in Christ, the rebirth has already taken place. That is only possible because God is the one who makes us alive and who brings us to faith. And God did not bring us new life and make us new creations in Christ to then turn around and serve ourselves but to serve his purposes and his will. And so then the next question we have to ask is, what is his purpose for us? So as we go through this text, what we're going to see is that God's purpose for us is to love. We're going to look at three points this morning to see who and what and how we are supposed to love. So God is the ultimate and the perfect form of love from which all other love flows. We can't truly define love on our own. Not only would we be not only would we fail to come anywhere close to truly defining it, but we would then be completely incapable of living it out even if we could define it. And so to truly understand and know how to love, we have to go to the source of all love. That's our only option. And so the first point is that because we've been born of God, we must love God's children. Now, as verse 1 continues in this text, we see that John starts with this assumption already that we love God the Father. And love for God is that starting point from which John's entire argument in this passage is going to flow. So without love for God, man can love no one and nothing. So any attempt to love God without, without God will be a horribly disfigured, selfish, and idolatrous waste of time. But if you truly love God, then you will be enabled to love others who love God. And this is really the basic building block of why we can have fellowship together as believers. So with that love for God as the building block, we're then enabled to turn around and love one another, to love the Father's other children. Look at the second half of verse 1, where it says, Everyone who loves the Father. Now, most translations there, my ESV included, render that simply as Father. And while we're definitely talking about God the Father here, I think the King James Version actually translates this a little bit better. The Greek word is a participle, and if you translate it extra woodenly or mechanically, it literally is the one having begotten. King James says, him that begat, so it's very similar. So the believer is the one who is then born or begotten. And it really preserves a nice parallel, which I think is helpful for us to see. So using the English wording in the ESV, the father and whoever has been born is actually the same Greek word, just in a little bit different form. And so in other words, you have the bearer and then you have the one who is born. That's what the actual Greek says. So if you love the father, then you must love him for who he is. 
You cannot love the Father if you do not love the fact that He is a Father to all believers. So let's go back to that born of God discussion from just a moment ago and piece that together. If you love the one who loved by giving life to his children, then you have to love the ones he has made and loved. So it's not enough to love the begetter if you don't love those begotten of him. You cannot truly have one without the other. And to deny one is to deny the other also. Let me put it this way. If you cannot love God's children, then you cannot love God. We can summarize that we must love God's children because they are his children. And because we are his children, he enables us to love our siblings. God's family, it's nothing like the families of the world. So often families here on this earth are broken and full of strife and anger. There's sin, there's evil, there's things that are messed up. But even the best families are only a dim picture of what the family of God is truly like. Only families that are anchored to Christ can truly love God and thus one another as they have been called to love. So in other words, only families within the church can truly love and care for one another as Scripture has commanded us to do. Well, the next question we need to ask is how we love others. We talked about the what enables us to love others, but how do we actually go about loving them? Well, if you go through Scripture, there's a lot of passages. Most of Scripture talks about how we should love one another, or at least has some sort of implication for it. But in this passage, we're really only going to address two ways in which we must love one another. So we love others by loving God and by loving his law. Now, we've already talked some about how to love God, but we'll see more fully how to love him by looking at his law. So that's the second point. Because we have been born of God, we must love God's law. So again, we need to be reminded that if we are truly born of God, we will love what God loves. So the persons of the Trinity love one another infinitely and perfectly. And that's the source of all true love. It all comes from the Trinity. It's all based on that inner Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, ultimately, we love what God loves by loving the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in order to love them correctly, we must know who they are. God is infinite and all-knowing, meaning he knows everything about himself and his creation. And if we do not understand his character, then we cannot love him. God is a God of love, yes, but also a God of holiness, of justice, of righteousness, of goodness, and a God of order. And part of the way in which his order and his holiness are displayed to the world is through his law. So the word of God has been clearly revealed to the church to keep and to obey. And his law is perfect and unchanging at making a a sure, reliable, and a steady teacher. The Spirit uses the word of God to train us, to make us understand how to love God and to teach us what God loves. So why would you want to uh, attempt to love God based on your own standards or your own understanding of the law? Imagine standing on the edge of a huge chasm. All you have to do is make it to the other side. You just need to watch out. 
Keep away from the sinkholes, the lava, the hungry lions, the minefields, the enemy soldiers defending it. You just need a cross. It's easy. And there's only one safe path through this chasm. And it's an easy path. There's nothing on that path to hurt you. But there's one problem. You're tied up, you're blindfolded, and you're sitting in a pitch dark room with no way out of it. That is what it is like to try to love God according to your own standards. But the Spirit of God comes along and removes your blindfold. He unties your chains. He helps you up. He takes you by the hand and he leads you across that chasm through the safe path. But even that is an incomplete understanding of God's law. Because his law is not just directions on how to cross. It is both the means to cross and the end goal of the crossing. Because God's law is a reflection of God and who he is. And so to love God and follow his law is to love God and follow him. That's what the law is, is his character. Verse 2 says that whenever we love God and do his commands. So all who love God must also love his children. And you will know that you love his children when you love God and do his what? His commandments. So these are three separate statements. But in another way, they're all one thing. They're all very similar, and yet they're so connected and interdependent, you can't have one without the other. They're connected, yet they're separate. I mean, no way to really explain that fully. You cannot love God and not love his children. Nor can you love God and his children, but then turn around and hate his law. Therefore, John can tell us that we know we love the children of God when we love him and when we do his commands. So we love those born of God by loving God and by doing his law. We look at the word of God to inform us how to love one another, how to love those born of God. As James tells us, if we know what the law requires for us to do for our brothers and our sisters, and then we fail to do it, it is sin. James also tells us not to be hearers of the law only, but also doers of the law. The Pharisees thought they had the law figured out. They knew so many details about the law. They knew the letter of the law. And yet they missed the law. Because they saw it as a means to self-righteousness and earning salvation before God. What they failed to understand is that while the law is rules for us, it is directions, it's more than that. Because it shows you the heart of God and it shows you your need for salvation and for grace. It shows you more about God because not only is a God of law and order, but a God who's also merciful and loving. And that's what the Pharisees missed when they looked at the law. So the law applied correctly must lead to love and a holy life of service. And this is where looking at the uses of the law will be helpful for us. So Reformed theologians have often divided the law into three general uses. First, it teaches us about God. Second, we see our failure with the law. It says this is the standard and we fall short. And so that drives us to Christ for forgiveness. And then the third use of the law is that it, it teaches us how to live. It is our guide, showing us how to live day to day. So all three of these uses are taught in the church, but we do really well with the second. And then sometimes we forget about teaching the first and the third use of the law. But here you are called, commanded, and enabled to do the law of God every day. You are called to holiness and right living according to the Bible 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about earning your salvation. Remember the order of operations in this passage. First, God recreates you, produces faith in you, and then you are called to live a life of obedience. But all three of these uses of the law are pivotal for us to understand how to do his law rightly. We have to learn about God through it, be driven to Christ, and learn how to live our daily lives. So let's consider an example. If you've ever read much of the Bible, then you'll probably have a general idea of how Paul's letters in the New Testament flow. He'll write an introduction and a thanksgiving, and then he'll dive into a doctrinal section. And then after that, he'll apply that doctrine in what's called hortatory, or the directions for how to living section, and then he'll close with thanksgiving. Let's think about the book of Ephesians for a moment. Paul gives an incredible opening prayer and thanksgiving with some of the deepest theology in the entire Bible. And throughout the doctrinal section of Ephesians that follows, there's a huge focus on the glory of Christ's church. In theology, we call that ecclesiology, the study of God's church. So Paul delves into the riches of who we are as a church that has been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, that has been united to him, that lives with him as the head of the body. Paul goes on to explain that the church is being prepared for an eternal union with Christ as a perfect bride cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then, as he moves through Ephesians, he goes on to explain the truths of those doctrines to the Ephesian saints. But then he comes to a point, and he directs words to husbands and wives. And he says, y'all behave so the world will like you. No. Husbands, love your wives, and wives, submit to your husbands, because guess what? That marriage thing that y'all are in is a picture of the everlasting union between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, which he gave his life to purify so that she can be presented to him spotless and without blemish. So when we stop and we consider the spiritual reality behind marriage, suddenly those commands for husbands and wives to serve each other and follow God's law becomes a little bit more important. Comes that much more meaningful given the doctrine behind that command. And so everything about the law is a reflection of who God is and what he has called you to be. There's not one single command in all of scripture that God has given to us that is not based on who he is. So doing the law of God is really applying the character of God to your life. I think this is where we also need to flesh out a difference between doing the law in verse 2 and keeping the law in verse 3. In verse 2, the focus was all about loving God by loving his children. And we fulfill this by doing the law. We do something actively. We do the law towards one another. So there's a horizontal aspect to doing. We are serving one another through following God's law. But I think when we move into verse 3 and we see the word keep, there's a slightly different connotation. This is the love of God that we might keep his commands. So I think that's transitioning from that horizontal focus to a vertical focus directly between us and God. We do the law to our neighbors, but we keep the law that God has given us. God does not need us to do the law to him. Instead, he commands us to keep the law that he has given to us. And keep is also different from doing because it carries an almost militaristic tone with it. 
The Greek word can also mean to guard, so to keep or to guard or to even protect the law. So God has entrusted us with his truth, and we must diligently, fervently, even zealously keep it. We have to guard ourselves from walking away from it, even as the word guards our hearts from lies and from sin. So the love of God does something that flies in the face of every worldly definition of love. Because God's call to love is a call to arms. It's a call to stand up and act like men and women of the truth. We're not called to passivity. We're not called to weakness. We're not called to uncertainty. We are commanded to live by and proclaim the excellencies of God's law with boldness. Don't just do the law. Keep it. It is your sword. It is your shield for the fight. And that sword is beyond earthly rival. It's able to pierce to the deepest parts of the soul while the shield can block and extinguish any dart that the devil has thrown at it. So don't just do the law of God. Keep it. And this leads us to the end of verse 3, which tells us more about the commands of God. They're not just commands that we must obey, though they are that. They don't just show the way of how to love one another and God, though they do that. They are a path to the good life of faith. The word of God is a tool by which we will know how to walk and how to live in our time on this earth. His law is what enables us to know how to endure every trial, withstand temptation, and to become more like Christ every day. Not one word that God has ever spoken or given to his people will ever return to him without accomplishing the purpose for which it has been sent. Now, there are a great many false gospels in the world. And all of them promise a whole lot of things, but in the end they are empty in their false gospels because they can't deliver on a single one of their promises. But meanwhile, the law of God comes with guarantees. Living a godly life in the pursuit of holiness will never fail us or let us down. Through these things, we're being prepared for glory. Well, at times they may seem inconvenient, they may seem costly, they will never fail to reap a far greater reward than what was sown by God's hand. Their eternal worth in the providence of God means that even the costliest laws for us to follow in this life are not burdensome to us. God's laws are not heavy and they are not oppressive. They are life-giving now and they will continue to be forever. Because we love God, His children, and His law, we have victory. And that's the final point. Because we've been born of God, we must love our victory. Not something we probably talk about too often in the church. Verse 4 returns us to the central theme in this passage of being born of God. Now, we've already talked about what it means to be born of God, but there's another implication that we still need to address in this passage. God's children conquer the world. Now, you'll notice that conquer is is a present tense verb. That means we conquer the world even now. But it's also an ever-present reality. Christians every day and throughout time are conquerors. And I think there are two senses to that statement. First, it's an ontological statement about who we are at the core of our identities. We do not just conquer by chance. We don't just conquer by extra effort. Conquerors are who we are. It is our identity in Christ. 
We have been born and made into conquerors by the virtue of being God's children. And if God's children are conquerors or even winners, I'll give you one guess who the losers are. The world is being conquered every single day. Every single man is born into sin apart from Christ. And as such, he is born a loser. He lives as a loser and he will die as a loser. And it also means that before our conversion, every single one of us was born as a loser. But that is no longer our identity. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Victory is our birthright as believers. Here's the second sense to the statement. There's an ongoing battle that is occurring every single day. This war is fought on two battlefields, the physical and in the spiritual realms. Now, Satan and the world are at war with us continually. Now, the enemy seeks to assault and destroy the church at every turn. But the church is a victor. It's born of the ultimate victor, who is Jesus Christ. And so each day, the church is the victor over the world, even when it doesn't look like it. But even individually, there is a constant battle taking place in the soul and body. The old flesh is at war with the new heart as we are being sanctified. We wrestle with our sin daily and we go on through the conflict of the struggle. And yet God has not left us empty-handed for that fight. He has given us the tools that we need to overcome sin, even the most difficult things and struggles. He has given us the strength to overcome. And therefore, we are conquerors every day. We have his word, prayer, and the church. But most importantly, we have his spirit living within us. Yet you may wonder how you are a conqueror. How can I be a victor when I deal with all this sin? How can I be a victor when this one sin still keeps to hang, seems to keep hanging around? Why is it taking so long to overcome this sin or overcome this struggle or this illness or whatever it may be? Or maybe you're looking at the culture around you and say, well, the, cult, the world seems to be winning the culture. It's even taken over a lot of the church. So how are we winners when it seems like we are more often the losers? And this is where we have to remember the source of our victory. We are told that we conquer the world, not because of how awesome we are, but by faith. Faith is one of those words that demands a subject. You cannot just state that you have faith. People in the world love to do that. I have faith that everything's going to work out. Okay, great. Faith in what? You have to have an object of faith. And the object of our faith has to be, must be, it demand, it, there is no other object of our faith other than Jesus Christ. This is how Colossians 2 talks about it. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is the victory won by Christ at the cost of his life. 
He laid down his life that he might bring victory to you, the people of his church. It is a universal and complete fact that Christ has already conquered. So while we saw that the conquering we do is a present tense, an ongoing victory, the victory of faith is a perfect tense. Our faith has conquered the world. It is done. It is finished. It is final. There's no victory left to be won. The fullness of victory is not something we're waiting on. It's something that we live by every single day. And as we saw, our faith is not in positive energy. It's not in ourselves. The victory has been won in Christ, and it was accomplished fully at the cross when the Son of God says, it said it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. And that is the victory which freed and bought the church for Christ. The battle has been completely and decisively won by Jesus, and nothing can ever happen that will ever undo the work of the God-man. And that is why our faith both conquers and has conquered the world at the same time. But we must ensure that we understand the order of these two victories, because while separate in one sense, they are very much the same. The final victory has already been won and cannot be affected by your daily victories or failures over sin. In fact, the truth is just the opposite. Your daily victories are grounded and dependent upon the final victory, which has already been won. So not only were you born a victor, you will continue to overcome Satan, the world, and your old nature because the victory is already done. So you're not just saints. You are victorious and conquering saints. Let's conclude. We began with the proposition that because we've been born of God, we must love God. We then walked through three points that helped explain how it is that we love God. Because we've been born of God, we must love God's children, his law, and our victory. So loving God, his children, and his law are all connected. They flow into one another, they enable one another, and they build upon one another. And when we are anchored to Christ by faith, we'll not only live out these three things, and as John told us, living out these things will be the path to our victory in Christ. So you may not have been born with the ability to play in the NBA. You may not have been born with the ability to be president of the United States. But you have been born with a much more important ability. The victory has already been won and assured, giving you hope and strength. The hope and strength that you need to fight the daily battle now. Because you know the ending to the story. So I want to finish by looking at how John ends this passage in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If Jesus has won such a complete and glorious victory, what does that mean for those who have been united to Christ? It means that you have conquered the world through Jesus. Your daily and your final victory can no more be taken away from you than Christ can renounce or undo the victory he has already won. So if you struggle with doubt, Preach to yourself the truths of this passage. In Christ, you are an unassailable conqueror who has already overcome this world through Christ. Yes, there is still a daily battle, but the assurance of victory is complete if your faith is in Christ. But notice that there is also a warning in this passage. If you do not trust in Christ, then this victory is not yours. Apart from Christ, you will suffer defeat every day of your life, and then ultimately you will be crushed by Christ. 
If you are not a child of God, then this passage is a warning to you. Look around at the world and recognize that you are on a losing side. It is headed for destruction. You are under the enslavement of a cruel taskmaster with a heavy burden. The heaviest portion being that you will be crushed on the last day. You are a born loser and you're headed towards everlasting defeat. But there's an answer to that. Repent and believe in Jesus and escape that calamity that's in store for you. There's no sin so great and there's no hour so late that you cannot lay all your sins at Jesus' feet and ask for forgiveness. Jesus did not come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinner. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if you come to Christ, then you will no longer be a loser or under wrath. You will be united to the one who has overcome the world. So where do you stand this morning? Are you being crushed in defeat awaiting your final judgment? Or are you standing as a conqueror through Christ? There's no third option, so think about that question carefully. To which group do you belong? You can be anything you want to be is not true. But thankfully, we do have something far better. Believer, rest in Christ and you will be a conqueror. And that is a promise that will never fail. Because Christ has already won that victory for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the victory that you have won. You have won it for your church to purify her, to make her whole, to make her complete. And you've called each one of us to faith so that we might become members of that church. Lord, we thank you. We rejoice in it. We do pray that you would help us to live out our faith by following, by doing, and by keeping your law. Lord, lead us, lead us to a greater love for you and for one another. We ask for it through Christ's name, by the help of your spirit.